0: Take a network break, enjoy a virtual donut and join us for our weekly dash through the week's networking and IT news. This week we're sponsored in part by Nokia. Did you know that Apple is using Nokia's data center fabric solution? If you want to know more and learn about Nokia SR Linux and their fabric services platform for yourself, check out nokia.com slash networks slash dc-fabric. We'll tell you more about that in the middle of the show. After the news, we've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're talking about digital experience management, which is all about monitoring and managing the user experience when employees are accessing networks outside of IT's control. Stick around for that. Uh, And finally, if you don't know, we ship a weekly newsletter. It's called Human Infrastructure. It's full of links to tech blogs from around the internet, IT news, and commentary from the pack of pushers and guest writers. You can sign up for Human Infrastructure for free and see all the back issues at packapushers.net slash newsletter. And Greg, I was just looking at all the back issues yesterday. We've got like, we're up to like over 200 issues. That's a lot of content.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're not very good about blogging it. You know, we really should make a better job of getting those stories. So each one has a custom written story um, in there, mostly focused people-centric or lifestyle-centric in some way. So if, you, if you're a little bit tired of being considered as you know, a technology machine, machine, then maybe uh, there's a chance for you to be considered as a human, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, that's the whole point.
0: All right, let's get to some news. First, content accelerator Fastly suffered a very public outage on June 8th that took down many popular websites across the United States for an hour or more. Fastly said the outage was caused by a software bug triggered by a legitimate customer configuration update. Uh, In a public post, Fastly is taking pains to emphasize that this was a very specific problem caused by very rare and specific conditions.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, the general consensus from people around the internet is that that is correct. Uh, Fastly did mm-hmm. recover very quickly, and they published a post mortem where they said at nine forty seven they noticed the global disruption. <laughs> kind of hard to miss when that's global <laughs> disruption. You <right>? might hope <laughs> uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. at nine. 9- at 9:48 they identified it okay <laughs> so if your whole networks dead in the water and you've got companies like Amazon and you know Walmart going down you're probably going to know about it within a 60 seconds so fair fair uh, i think the the uh, interesting part here is that by 1027 fastly engineering had identified the customer configuration so within 45 minutes they'd managed to introduce that a customer had configured a rule that was pushed into the CDN that had some way taken down the whole global network because the CDN contains all rules everywhere that's the very idea of a CDN and at some point you know the whole system has to be coherently configured the same right right yep And then by 10.36, which is literally less than an hour later, services began to recover because they worked out what the problem was. By 11 o'clock, the majority of services had returned and then they closed it out. And then they had a bug fix coming out, starting out, uh, deploying out to prevent this from happening again by 5.30 that evening. So just to think about that, that's an incredibly rapid response. So all props to Fastly for that. And provided they're telling the truth and there's no reason to assume that they aren't, this is a very quick response. They were down, most customers were down for less than an hour. So pretty good, really.
0: I think so. And I also sort of appreciate the fact that, you know, they could have positioned the outage report to throw the customer under the bus. They did not. They took Mm -hmm. responsibility for it. They made it clear that the customer was doing the right thing. It happened to be mm. a bug internally to the way Fastly set it up. So, uh, props for not <laughs> trying to shift blame to your customer.
1: Yeah, but still, I'm struck by this is the weakness of just a few mega providers, right? Uh, we've talked before about AWS, Google, Azure just being one mistake away from a complete outage, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that they take, uh, you know, and Fastly is one of the biggest CDN companies in the world, and many of the world's biggest companies were impacted by this outage. Like, a veritable NASCAR slide of global companies, exactly, who were including Amazon's website and you know, Walmart's and CNN, yeah, yeah.
0: the big news sites, yep. yeah, popular website destinations,
1: yeah, and uh, just phenomenal. So the point, perhaps, here is if you think about it, the blast radius of a technology with a single supplier and a single large supplier. Now many people say a large supplier is the most reliable supplier and that's why we go with them because they're big because they're good, but they're good because they're big and but the blast radius is big, right? And you know, we saw this similar sort of thing highlighted with the OVH fire in Paris five four or five months ago. And, Uh you know, a single supplier does simplify the operation, but a failure like this means that you don't get a failover. Like if you've only committed to a single supplier strategy in cloud, you don't get to failover. Now, of course, Fastly was able to rapidly identify and fix the problem in less than an hour, which is probably less than the time most people could fail over (laughs) to. Great. It is remarkably quick. It is a remarkable kick. So maybe the win here is that Fastly was well-equipped staffed by smart people, able to react very quickly because they're a large supplier. But on the other hand, when everyone else is down, that's a huge business opportunity that you're missing out on. So- if you had been able to seamlessly switch over in less than this time and your competitors are all down because they're single supplier, uh, you would actually be up and running and have a better reputation potentially. Everybody, This is one of these moments where everybody runs around and says, uptime's critical, uptime's critical, and when it goes down, everybody goes, ah, oh, I'm just relieved that it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> right Sorry. somebody else's problem somebody else's problem you know oh the cdn's down you know it's the same cdn that amazon uses so it's not my fault it's just one of those things isn't it mr ceo yep so uh you know thoughts and prayers thoughts and prayers sort of thing
0: i just wanted to put a number when you're talking about blast radius uh according to fastly the bug triggered 85 percent of fastly's network to return errors so
1: yes significant blast radius. yeah and they're the biggest if if not the largest then one of the top three, for sure, of CDN providers. Uh, What is interesting is that the the Fastly share price jumped from $46 to $57 in the 48 hours after the outage. For no apparent reason. Uh, so, the investor story here might be that news like this brings companies to the attention of a wider audience. So, once they hit the press, and that in this case, it was obvious that Fastly is critical to many, many large companies like Amazon and so forth, and CNN and so forth. And people, there is a certain category of investor that likes to invest in companies that are critical or have dominant positions. And mm-hmm. now that they know that Fastly is one of those companies, they moved in to buy up those shares. Uh, or it could just be a meme stock on Reddit. Who knows? Whatever.
0: Right, there could be a bunch of retail investors suddenly like, "There's a dip, buy it, quick, yeah, go!" Yeah. But
1: there was no dip. The stock went up from right from the very start.
0: So <laughs> who knows? Who, who who knew that you know uh, a, a massive global outage could be good for your stock price? That's counterintuitive to me. But yeah, things are weird.
1: Logically, you should be expecting more outages. Yeah. Yeah. Just before the end of quarter, the CEO's got a button, makes an outage, gets a 10% share pop. Perfect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So cynical. (laughs) Uh, As you noted, my take is that consolidation of services leads to consolidation of dependencies and cascading failures. That was clearly the case here. I think for a company like Fastly, if you're going to be that big, you also need to be good. And it turns out, I guess Mm. they, they were pretty good in terms of recovery.
1: Well, this time, this time, you never know how lucky I've been in situations like this where <laughs> are you, the right person was in the right yes, place you, at the right time. Are you time. good
0: or are you yeah. lucky? Well, I guess we'll find out.
1: Yeah. So far, you have to say they're yep. good. You get one. Yep. Yeah.
0: Well, sticking with outages, uh, an AWS availability zone in Frankfurt, Germany was down for approximately three hours. Observers on social media initially suspected a fire because of cryptic status reports from Amazon that cited, quote, an increase in ambient temperature. End quote, inside the data center. Turns out the actual culprit, uh, thanks to some excellent sleuthing at the register, was a cooling system failure. So some servers shut down as the temperature got hotter, and then the temperature rising triggered a fire suppression system, which quote, a chemical is dispersed to remove oxygen from the air to extinguish any fire, which locked the people out from recovering uh, the machines.
1: Yep. Like I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Single supplier strategies, when they go, they go. Losing an entire availability zone. Uh, this is why AWS, of course, will tell you that you know we're not responsible for uptime. That's your problem. But uh, a lot of people run around going, "Oh, but AWS runs data centers better than I do." Clearly, they don't. Uh, this is just one of those situations where the temperature rises, the argon dump system or the nat- the gas system t- has dumped. Obviously, it's triggered itself and gone off. And once that's dumped, then you have to go through a whole process of airing out the room. So that there's enough oxygen in there for people to go in and and work on whatever's gone right, wrong. Right, and I guess the so. local
0: firefighter team had to come in and make sure it was safe. So, another reminder that the cloud does exist in the physical world; it's still susceptible to physical conditions like heat, fire, flood, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you mentioned, when an entire availability zone goes down, it, it is essentially on you when you design your AWS applications and services to account for that. And which is why mm-hmm. Amazon says use multiple availability zones. And here's another proof point. For yes. This.
1: Which is exactly the same as what you do in an on-premise data center, by right. the way. That's no different. It's just a question of whether you're renting it or whether yeah. you choose to capitalize it. And that's largely a question for another day. That's something that we talk about here often enough on, on our other shows. So let's not bang on about that's it here. Right.
0: In any case, we'll have a link to the register article if you want a good postmortem. That's in the show notes to this episode. Uh, moving on, Ars Technica reports that there are active exploits against a remote code execution vulnerability in VMware's vCenter and Cloud Foundation products. VMware disclosed the vulnerabilities and issued updates and workarounds back on May 25th, but there are now exploits in the wild.
1: Yeah, and so the issue here is that the vCenter uh, console, which actually administers all your service, has a, has a vulnerability. Basically, it's somewhat trivial to exploit and has now moved from being publicly disclosed to actively being scanned on the internet. Uh, and the vSphere client has a, has a CVS rating of 9.8. Um, Out of 10. So in that sense, it's pretty dire. Uh, but honestly, it shouldn't be exposed to the internet, really. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. So it's as, if your um, management of the vSphere client using HTML5 is the, is the problem and the software that you have that manages yes. it, that can be exploited. So you'd have to chain some things together. Um, The challenge here, of course, is that it's common practice to never expose your vSphere client, which you use to administer your VMware fleet, to public access. It should be stored on some sort of intermediary server that you jump to, and then from the jump server, you then can go on and run forwards, and this server should be protected. Uh, But we know that not everybody is able enough to follow that sort of practice or have the resources to install a jump server. And uh, you might find um, that a lot of people have skipped it and just put the V, you know, made access available, or the VSphere client is available via RDP, and then those people are going to be in trouble.
0: Right. Well, there are updates and workarounds, uh, and links in the show notes if mm-hmm. you need to go figure this out.
1: This is one of these things, though. Like, this is a tool which is absolutely critical. <sighs> right. Management, you know, getting control of the management platform is a thing, of right? Your entire virtual. And you environment, sort of yes. think that. And you sort of want to think to yourself that VMware would be taking maximum security and prevention of these things. But what is actually true here is that the reverse is true because most people know that you should never expose the VMware vCenter server to the internet. And so what they actually do is put the less smart developers and the interns on that code or maybe skip the security testing. So I wonder if there's sort of like this feedback loop of everybody knows that we don't put this on the internet. So we'll just, you know, we won't spend so much money testing that. And then all of a sudden, but everybody out there, do you know how it goes? Like, it's one of those situations. You're thinking that VMware thinks uh,
0: customers are going to be smart enough not to do this, and so they didn't have to build around that potential use case. Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, when you set up best practices, what happens is your testing tends to focus on best practices and not outside of that use yep. case. And the best practice is to hide these VMware vCenter server updates or the you know away. And if that's the case, then. You don't do a lot of testing outside of the best practice uh-huh. type stuff. I see what you mean, right? yes. And so when the best practices fail for whatever reasons, this stuff hasn't been securely secured, or the developers who are behind it haven't been trained or scrutinized, or the fuzzing hasn't been as complete, or the budget's cut for that because, you know, everybody knows that you shouldn't do that. Whatever. Could be. All right, moving on. The US Department of Justice was able
0: to recover about half of the 4.4 million in Bitcoin that a US pipeline operator paid to the dark side ransomware group after a ransomware attack crippled oil and gas operations uh, for this pipeline operator back in May. Apparently the FBI was able to obtain the private key to a Bitcoin wallet where 63 of the Bitcoins had been moved. The government hasn't revealed how it got access to the private key, although some suspect perhaps an informant or sloppy communications among the dark side group.
1: So the use for cryptocurrencies for criminal activity is fairly widely known. I would speculate that perhaps the only reason for the success of Bitcoin is criminal activities by and large, and speculation, which is also pseudo criminal, close to criminal activity. Um, But what a lot of people don't realize is that transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain and most other blockchains is actually fully traceable by private companies. There are companies out there who literally spend all of their time reading the blockchain, making analysis of all the tractions that, transactions that have on it, and they actually can trace all of the flows of value and transactions on the blockchains, just to for, for most or all of them. Certainly for Bitcoin, it's completely covered. So one assumes that the TLA secret service agencies are also able to do it, or more likely buy that data from a commercial company that does that. Uh just note that the commercial purchase of that actually conveniently bypasses a whole bunch of laws about what the police can and cannot do, because when they purchase it from a commercial company, it is actually public information. So there's no restrictions on the legal process there. Uh, but I do I do wonder there was some interesting wording in the article, Drew, which sort of said uh, you know the government hasn't revealed how it got access to the private key of the wallet that they recovered, and there's various bits of you know, uh, things happening on security Toronto that sort of suggest that maybe the people involved might be hackers, not necessarily part of the dark side group, who are sort of thinking that having the FBI snooping around the hacking industry is not good for their mm-hmm. business. So maybe what we'll do is give the money back to the FBI and maybe they'll go away and stop harassing all of us hackers so we can get some business done.
0: That's interesting. uh, Not a great strategy because the FBI is not going to stop. Um, Law enforcement agencies aren't going to stop. Maybe it was a competing group that Mm -hmm. wanted to sort of stick it to dark side uh, or uh, an informant. uh, Maybe the FBI had some leverage on someone. Um, I I, I read Mm -hmm. the FBI affidavit that they submitted uh, to use the private key to go seize the assets. Uh, And it sounds like, yes, they were actually monitoring uh, the public ledger, which is the whole point of the public ledger, to see where the transactions were Mm -hmm. going. Uh, I'm curious about where this wallet uh, was hosted because that you, you, to go in and seize it, you would need permission. So was it hosted in the US? Was <laughs> it hosted elsewhere? I don't know. Uh, I can't tell if yep. this was sloppy work by dark side or maybe a sop to uh, the US government saying, please don't come after us too hard. Here's a little bit of money
1: back. Well, the wallet that was seized as actually in California was actually located on a server in California.
0: That's what it sounds like because of where mm. the affidavit was filed. Yeah.
1: That's right. But how did the money get into a wallet in California?
0: And why was it left there? That's exactly <laughs> <you> right. Leave-
1: <laughs> so so the suggestion is that somebody might have either, you know, as you say, been compromised and they said, Oh, we'll transfer it to this wallet and then maybe you'll leave me alone. Uh-huh. And or it could have been a competitor who you know, maybe had access to the wallet from, you know, they hacked a competitor and got the data and said, we need to get the feds off our back. Let's give them something so they stop harassing us so we can get back to doing business, you know, yeah, because uh, we are seeing the governments really, really get serious about this. So this whole, we're seeing the UK government put the hacking up to the top of the list for police action from the Secret Services. You've seen the US government, like President Biden and his administration have posted several um, executive orders as well to say this is now a top priority after losing the beef, the petrol, and the oil, you know, the petrol (laughs) and the oil and a few others, the hospitals going down, the uh, US government has been poked into action and the UK government is looking on going like, I think, and I'm pretty sure the EU is doing something similar. So I can only speak to those because they're the ones that I sort of read about. But I imagine for a lot of governments, this is top of mind.
0: You take away Americans' gas and beef, you're going to get some attention that you don't want.
1: Yeah. Oh, and healthcare. Yeah. Because everybody wants to... Everybody, everybody thinks healthcare is the thing. You know.
0: In some ways, I feel like this is kind of—I mean—it's a great success for law enforcement. It's also sort of an argument against law enforcement's position that it must have backdoors into encrypted communications to be able to do its work. Uh, it doesn't necessarily—they—they they use traditional tools here: subpoenas, analysis, uh, maybe some law enforcement pressure on insiders or informants or whatever uh, mm-hmm. to execute this. It was not about having to crack crypto or have backdoors into crypto. So. The next time they come around with that argument, we can point to this and say, yeah, maybe not.
1: Yeah, that's right. They've got all the powers that they need. It's just a cost thing. The challenge here is that if you've got intercept capability, it lowers the cost of policing. Um, and of course, you want to have your policing as simple and you know easy to do as possible. And that's the advantage of tapping and interception. Right. But uh, there are other ways to do it, of course. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely.
0: All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Nokia. Did you know that Nokia has over 1.1 million routers deployed and power some of the largest interconnection networks, including Equinix and DECIX? And recently, Nokia launched its data center fabric solution, building on over 20 years of IP know-how and expertise. The new dc fabric solution includes sr linux it's a new open extensible resilient network os it's based on standard linux and uses Nokia's field proven protocol stacks and provides best in class streaming telemetry there are also interconnect routers this is a portfolio of leaf spine and super spine platforms based on merchant silicon and there's the fabric services platform this is a declarative intent-based automation and operations toolkit for your day zero day one and day two plus operations Fabric Services Platform uses Kubernetes and a distributed microservices approach so you get a true cloud-native automation and operations platform. There are certified design templates and a digital sandbox so you can create a true emulation of the data center fabric. Operators can automate their data center networks at scale and speed and with confidence. So check out the new data center fabric solution at nokia.com slash networks slash dc-fabric. That is nokia.com slash networks slash dc-fabric. You can also search on packetpushers.net for a variety of podcasts we've done with Nokia about the data center fabric solution.
1: Yeah, they've got some cool stuff going on there. I've enjoyed the conversations around SL Linux, and they've got a real passion around how they've put that together, which I like. It's a compelling story. And they've got the whole SDN suite as well. If you're into intent-based networking, they've got the fabric software orchestration. If you want a high-quality NOS, they've got that whole thing going. So yeah, I like it. Yeah, check it out.
0: Right, back to the news. Intel and TSMC, they both made a lot of noises about building chip foundries in the US state of Arizona. However, Arizona is a very dry state, as folks may know. It seems like a kind of strange location for an industry that requires millions of gallons of water. And Greg, you found an article that may offer some explanation.
1: Yeah, well, I mentioned this and I thought, I really wish I had a reference for the fact that building a, a fab in the desert, knowing that it uses millions of gallons of water. And when I saw this, I thought, aha, Somebody else obviously thinks the same way that I do, which is delightful. And it turns out that the Arizona desert is good for a bunch of reasons. First of all, seismically, the Arizona desert is very, very stable. When you're making a machine that's operating at nanometers, the vibration in the ground matters. (laughs) <laughs> so, as you might Red. think because if you're pointing a laser at something and the ground moves <laughs> rumbles or you get earthquakes or hurricanes or you know bad weather so apparently Arizona's got that going for it and it also does not uh, it has low risks of other natural disasters so uh, no hurricanes coming in or tornadoes coming in from the sea or you know that type of stuff. There's mm-hmm. also the solar energy potential. Obviously, in the middle of a desert, I think they were trying to make a pitch in the web in various articles that Arizona's got the potential to do solar credible, but only if you build it. Uh, But it turns out that the big one is that Intel and uh, other people who have fabs there, TSMC, uh, recycle that water or do reclamation. So as the water goes through the plant, they bring together technologies to reclaim the water and then to reuse it again. So apparently they lose very little water in the process. It's not like they run it in and then just runs back out the other side dirty and push it back into the rivers. Apparently they reclaim it. Now my understanding is that that is largely because the water that washes out the other side is highly toxic it's full of very very poor uh, strong uh, waste and it gets removed not so much to save water but for <laughs> to avoid to- you know poisoning the area that you work in uh-huh. So there's that. And then the final point that was made in the article from our Ars Technica is that Intel's established its presence in Arizona more than forty years ago and currently employs twelve thousand people. And Arizona's local universities have responded by establishing semiconductor design courses and research. So they've got stability, water, solar energy and headcount, they can recruit quite cheaply in the region. And no doubt the Arizona government is giving them pots and pots of cash to build more and more stuff there, so as is the way of U.S. capitalism. Yes, that's so.
0: Uh, I'm still surprised about Arizona as the location. It'd be great to see if uh, having uh, a fab there helps spur more solar deployment. That would be cool. Um, Really curious to see what they do about the water situation, though. Mm. Well, they're actually
1: talking about being water-positive,
0: they are. And I looked I looked at their website and I'm a little suspect about some of these uh, yeah. initiatives because it's mostly about buying leases from other people to take the water. So, yeah. <laughs> not so well, much you conservation know. as yeah. moving the, the books around, but
1: you know, they're trying. Yeah, it's not like it's just, you know, take all the water, burn it up and move on like some companies. So they Right. Are, you know.
0: There's some uh, conservation efforts there. Yeah, it looks that way. Right. Sticking with silicon, the German manufacturer Bosch is scheduled to start fabricating microchips for the auto industry. This is at a foundry based in Dresden, Germany. Starting in September, the foundry is expected to produce 300 millimeter wafers for chips that can be used in automobiles. We've heard about chip shortages for the auto sector having intermittently halted vehicle production either here in the US and in Europe. So this is probably welcome news.
1: Yeah. So this is a wafer fab. Uh, This is not a silicon fab. This is a manufacturing fit for the silicon billet, as best as I can tell. And the silicon billet is a, uh, what they actually do is make a a molten vat of very high purity silicon, and then they put in a, a thing and then the... Uh, silicon actually gloms onto it and then they draw it up very slowly at a set interval so that the silicon deposits uh, onto in a cylindrical fashion around a starter and then they, as they pull it up and those billets can be meters long, two three four and they weigh a couple of tons of you know nearly 100 percent pure silicon billets and then they have to be sliced up into wafers. And so this is a wafer manufacturing plant, not a chip manufacturing plant, which is why it's only a billion euros to build it. Although Bosch is very impressed with themselves calling it the biggest single investment in Bosch's more than 130-year history. Uh, and it's I think it's interesting that most of the products that used use to make silicon chips, like the actual machines, the factory uh, production machines actually come from Germany a lot of them come from the US but a lot uh, I think a fair number of them come from Germany so it makes sense for this industry to be in Germany because the machines that are actually used to you know purify the silicon purify the air that goes into these plants performs a lot of the things actually come from other German companies
0: yeah and we definitely know that many countries are interested in building out their own semiconductor capabilities given the political issues going on with China where most of the (laughs) semiconductor Mm. actual um, manufacture happens.
1: It's kind of interesting that most of the articles that I read from around the world said it was a silicon fab. It's not. It's just making the wafers. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so got to be careful sometimes. A lot of the people in the press didn't pick up the difference between a wafer, but the difference in the f- process and what comes out the other side. But And of course, Bosch is actually a specialty supplier to the auto industry. So it looks like they'll be making wafers that specifically target cars, but they still have to go off to another organization to actually have the fabs, to have the wafers imprinted with the chips, if that makes sense, or processed further. Right. But, yeah. And uh, the German government has clearly been heavily involved here and the EU government. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel was involved and the EU president was all there. So I'd say that there was a fair bit of government support, as is Germany's want to promote manufacturing. They have a cultural preference for doing manufacturing. They like jobs that last, you know, long term manufacturing jobs. So I'd say mm-hmm. this has been the result of a substantial government private cooperation.
0: All right, our last story for today, HashiCorp has announced the 1.0 version of Terraform. Terraform's the popular software used to deploy infrastructure, including compute instances, storage, and networking. Terraform's often used to deploy and change public cloud infrastructure. It also helped to popularize the notion of infrastructure as code.
1: Yeah, so this is great news. I think the thing that uh, I don't think I need to tell anybody about Terraform, which has mostly captured the attention of people who want to automate the public cloud, and where Ansible has failed to capture mind share with developers or substantial market share outside of the networking vertical, Terraform has gone on to be very much a public cloud. And we often see people producing automation tools, especially low code, no code, being able to support Terraform and Ansible at the same time because. That's the reality. Uh, and Terraform, the fact that it's captured so much attention without actually reaching version one, sort of speaks to what makes it popular. That is the company behind it, which is HashiCorp, has pursued a rather ethical and community-based approach. So, to, And they've been very big on generating lots of goodwill with the open source developers who've been contributing to the product that they've making themselves. They haven't been trying to exploit all of its value. They've been working very hard to give back to the community as far as it's possible. And um, I, I don't yeah. know, Drew, I just feel like this really highlights the difference between vendors that use open source as a way to exploit a free labor force. And they are often unhappy or you know, they don't go for very long. Or the other thing that we see companies do is to throw a lot of money at developer programs, which is like basically making it Uh, palatable for you to come and work for them. They put up websites and forums Uh and encourage you to participate in social events instead of just letting you get on with the job, which is contributing code. And I think the Hashi program has been much more successful than perhaps other developer programs I've seen from mainstream vendors.
0: Yeah, I'm not a close follower of Terraform, but I was frankly surprised to see that it's just now at a 1.0 version, given that it first came out in 2014. That, you know, seven, eight years uh, of being mm. around before you hit 1.0, I think, to me, communicates uh, an internal commitment to wanting a very stable product, a very reliable product, mm. um, as opposed to just cranking out release after release after release. So uh, I, I like that approach.
1: Yeah, less of the move fast and break things and more of the, hey, we're infrastructure, we need to work. Steadily and progressively forward, but it does, you know, sort of. It just the, the whole HashiCorp just highlights how exploitative a lot of the dev programs are from other vendors. You know, come and come and write code for our platform, and you can get access to our special club. I don't really want to be a member of your special club. I just <laughs> wanted to contribute some code. If you want me to work for you for free, give me something back. You know, pay me. You know,
0: Yes. So, yes, for sure.
1: If you ever get that feeling, just ask yourself, what are you doing there? And decide whether your personal life is more valuable in a pub with a beer than it is writing code for somebody else to exploit.
0: Uh, I just uh, want to note that we'll have in the show notes a link to a Datanauts podcast that we did a few years back uh, about Terraform. If you want to get more details, that'll be in the show notes and also the link to the announcement from HashiCorp. Uh, that does wrap up our news portion of the show. You can stick around for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking with Palo Alto Networks on their new digital experience management capabilities for you to help better the experience of your distributed workers. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers, our topic is Digital Experience Management, or DEM, Dem. With distributed and remote work becoming more accepted, IT organizations are looking for better ways to monitor and manage the user experience when employees are accessing networks that are outside of IT's control. And today we're going to talk about DEM with our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. And our guest is Anupam Apigaya. He is Senior Director of Product Management at Palo Alto. Uh, Anupam, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with an overview of digital experience management for folks who might not be familiar with it. What is it? Why is there
2: a need for it? First of all, thanks for having me here. So DEM, if you look at DEM, Digital Experience Management, it's a Gartner term. But really, if you look at what's driving DEM, even before COVID, we had some apps, there's this digitization happening, Some apps are sitting in the cloud, some apps are sitting in data center, and people are working from anywhere, right? In offices, at home. And there was this challenge for IT professionals to have end-to-end visibility because when they're sitting at home, customers are using their Wi-Fi. customers are using consumer grade ISPs, right? To Mm. access applications in the cloud. And then COVID happened. And once COVID happened, as employees, started working from home, the number of remote locations just exploded, right? It became massive. Everyone became a branch of one and every home became a remote location. And now everyone is trying to access applications in the cloud, applications in the enterprise and the IT guys are trying to ensure that they can provide the same experience for employees at home while they had an office. This coupled with the lack of visibility, they do not have an end-to-end visibility as to what's happening inside the home, what's happening on the ISP, caused a huge IT support nightmare. And when you look at traditional tools, they were not really equipped to handle this work from home and this digitization initiative. And they were not sufficient for IT to provide visibility and provide good experience for working from home. It's really interesting how
1: the transition that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months has basically highlighted that the fact that we had no monitoring in our campus networks, but we didn't need to because you're inside the campus where everything is guaranteed, where you can go and touch the, see the user, you know what the network bandwidth looks like may not be perfect, but you know what it looks like. Whereas when you suddenly work, you know, outside the office in a distributed format, whether it's in a at home or in a coffee shop or in a serviced office or rented office space, all of a sudden the question of bandwidth becomes variable. And that's what, to me, that's the key thing about digital experience monitoring is this idea that the situation changed. You're not sitting in a known space on a known system You have a bunch of intangibles and unknowables and you need to gain visibility
2: to change that. That is spot on. I mean, if you look yeah. at it, building on what you said, right? Yeah. Let's just think about us sitting at home. Endpoint: how are end users, devices, Wi-Fi, local networks performing. Traffic, how is application traffic behaving for that remote user? Path, entire network path, starting from my laptop, to my Wi-Fi, to the ISP, to the cloud, to the app. How is that path performing, right? How is the app performing? All those are the problems that DM is really (laughs) trying to solve for. But it's
1: that, and that's the point of digital experience monitoring is to attack that uncertainty, to come up with a way to say, sure, it's uncertain, but you can't fix it, perhaps, although we can fix it. There are ways to fix it, of course, but what you need to be able to do is to know where the problem exists. So digital experience monitoring is about, not only monitoring the network, but monitoring that whole location to destination uh, now that we're using a distributed, now that work is distributed, wherever it might be.
2: Correct. And uh, Andrew, we like to call it digital experience management because we just don't want to stop at monitoring. We want to manage that experience for you, right? Mm -hmm. And if I talk about this, Greg, a bit from Apollo Alto perspective, We really thought about three pillars, right? So before we talk about Palo Alto, if you think about our SASE solution, at the end of the day, we're offering customers a service, which is secure access as a service. We're going to secure all your traffic. We are going to make sure that no bad actors enter your network, compromise your network or users. And when we offer that service, we are very cognizant that if something goes wrong, It's mission critical for the customer. And the burden of proof is on us to show where the issue might be. The issue might be on our side, or the issue Mm -hmm. might be the ISP or the app. But it's really, we owe it to the customer to show where the issue is.
1: So two things there. One is you're saying it's not just monitoring, it's management. You're actually closing the loop. So monitoring is, oh, look, it's running slow. Yay. (laughs) Clap hands and everybody goes, we found the problem, but it doesn't help you fix it. Management implies that there's some sort of tooling there that says, ah, we know that there's a problem and we think we've got some suggestions that you
2: could take or that type of approach. Is that how Palo Alto is approaching this? We sort of thought about it from three pillars. And I'll talk about two which are very obvious, right? Mm. And one which you talked about, end-to-end comprehensive visibility. I'm going to tell you the entire network path. The second is, what we call segment-wise insights. So what that means is, look, there are multiple segments, right, Greg? Like we said, Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi, LAN, WAN, cloud, apps. I'm going to tell you which segment is having a problem and what could the problem be. I'm also going to baseline the all segments for you and tell you, hey, is the problem just for Greg? Is the problem in San Jose? Is the problem in California? Is the problem Mm -hmm. worldwide, right? Mm -hmm. And then the last part, which is one of the key differentiations for us. It's SASE native. And what that really means is from Palo Alto, you have bought a service, you have deployed that service. And as you deploy that service, we enable DM as part of that service. We're not asking you to put more software in. We're not asking you to put more probes in. You deploy our service in the cloud and bingo. We enable ADM right off the bat for you. So those become the three pillars of our strategy, SASE native, end-to-end comprehensive visibility, and segment-wise insights.
0: Okay, so I want to make sure I understand closer here because my impression with the digital experience management space is that there usually tends to be some kind of agent on a device uh, so I can get an end-to-end measurement. You're saying, do you do that as well? And you also tie
2: the cloud in? How does it all fit together? So if you look at our SASE solution, let's talk about people like you and I sitting at home right now. and trying to get work done, right? So when you buy our SASE solution, you have a global protect agent, which provides you the VPN service, right? To connect back securely to the cloud or to your on-prem, right? And as you enable that VPN, that VPN client also enables the DM functionality, right? So there's no need to deploy new software. So that was part one of your question. Then the second question that you asked was, okay, that's great. You have client-side visibility where you can sort of run telemetry and other interesting stuff. What's happening on the other side? Now, since you're consuming our service in the cloud, we are also enabling DM functionality in the cloud as well for you, right? So it's sort of working on both ends. Okay, so
0: to make sure I understand then I've got the endpoint part so I can get the path from you know the endpoint to say a SAS application, but you also have a different perspective, a different vantage point because you've got points of presence all over where I could run maybe remote tests to see what's going on globally.
2: So let's dive a bit deeper on this part, right? So when you think about digital experience management, there are two things you can do. One is I can run synthetics, which means the customer tells, Hey, for my Enterprise, these are the applications of interest. It could be G Suite, Office, what have you, right? And then you say, hey, run synthetics for me. And then what we do is we are running synthetics from every endpoint that you have with us, right? Mm. And then we are also running synthetics from every vantage point in the cloud, right? Mm. Because we leverage providers like GCP, AWS, we have presence all over the world, right? So now we're running synthetics to the application from the cloud and from the endpoint. And that is what truly allows us to build those segment wise insights. Now there's another element, right? A lot of times you see interesting traffic happening on your network for which you might not be running synthetics. And that's where we also do something called RAM or real user monitoring. And what that does is that is looking at, because all your traffic is being inspected by our security stack in the cloud. I'm looking at all your traffic and figuring out what other traffic is of interest. So then I can tell you, hey, Greg, although you asked me to run synthetics on Office 365 and G Suite, I'm seeing a lot of Zoom traffic in your network. Yeah. Do you want to run synthetics on that as well? Right? So that combination of RAM and synthetics truly allows us to build that baseline and deviation for... Yeah, the
1: synthetics is super important to that uh, monitoring and management because you can actually run them at specified times of day. There's a couple of things you can do. You can now say, oh, we tend to have more problem." You ask the user in the field and she, they say, oh, we have more problems in the morning than we do the afternoon. So you run your synthetics in the morning. And then what you do is you run them out of hours to see if it's a load problem. And that's the great part about synthetics is because you can you don't actually monitor the traffic when it's occurring, you can actually monitor it in a time zone and get relative data. Whereas if you're doing something like net flow analysis, all you can say is at this point in time, this flow was performing badly. Very good,
2: very good. Not helpful, yep. but good, right? Yep. You know? Yep. Like you said, synthetics, you can sort of time it. And real user monitoring, like the name says, is intercepting traffic in real time and telling you mm. what's happening in your network. And if I remember rightly, the product that
1: Palo Alto used, this product actually lets me do some, there's a lot of preset synthetic testing that I can do. I don't have to do a whole lot of work to create a a basic portfolio of synthetic tests, but I can actually get quite advanced if I so choose. I can actually get down to starting to, I want to do this HTTP command and so forth and log in and download this and, and use that whole, that's not the whole digital performance monitoring. It's just
2: some basic synthetic testing. Yeah, you bring up two very interesting points. One is, when I said SASE native in the beginning, right? Because you have deployed our GP agent on your endpoints, Mm -hmm. or let's say if you're in the branch, you have deployed our SD-WAN device, which will also run synthetics and RUM real user monitoring in the future, and you have our Prisma access in the cloud. So what's happening is, when you enable that DEM switch, we've actually been looking at your traffic. So right at the go. As you go to the DEM portal, we tell you, Greg, hey, these are the applications that we are seeing which are of interest in your network. And then we can say, hey, do you want us to run synthetics for you for these applications? So it's very easy, very intuitive for you to figure out what is the application of interest in your network because we have been monitoring all that traffic and enable the synthetics.
0: And are there different kinds of synthetic tests I can run if I want to say, like, understand the round-trip time between an endpoint and a cloud application or look at throughput on a link, that kind of thing?
2: Absolutely. Let's dive a bit deeper out of this, right? Ultimately, what are you monitoring? You're monitoring the app, you're monitoring the path, you're monitoring the network. So for app, you can do, like you said, HTTP test. For path, trace route. For end-to-end, you do ICMP pings. You can do application pings, Right. And it's just a little stop there, right? You're also doing underlay trace route, right? For the underlay network and for the overlay, you're also doing a trace route. And that is what allows us to do that per hop, loss, jit latency, jitter, and path visualization. So, all these, a combination of underlay and overlay tests, which comprising of ICMP, HTTP, trace route, and application things, allows us to build that per segment wise insights.
0: One other aspect I think we haven't touched on is for the home user. As you mentioned earlier, there are so many uh, steps between them and the application. One of those steps, or at least two of them, are the Wi-Fi and the ISP. Is there anything information-wise or performance-wise you can do for that, that sort of last or first mile?
2: So the best way to sort of look at this question is, let's talk about now, right? We are sitting on Zoom, right? And let's say there's a performance issue with Zoom. And that issue could happen because of a... Issue with the application itself on the laptop, hey, there's an OS issue, or there's a memory contention, there's a CPU contention, that's part number one. Second is like you said, it could be a Wi-Fi issue. The third is, it could be from the Wi-Fi to the ISP. And since we are sitting on the endpoint client, we're actually able to look at all these three elements, Right? what's happening on the device, what's happening on the local network, and what's happening on the ISP. So that truly allows us to sort of figure out where the issue on the land side is. And let's say the issue is not on the land side, Greg. The issue is, okay, the land side is actually pretty fine. Everything looks good from the endpoint client, RSSI check, Wi-Fi is beautiful. Zoom is getting all the CPU and all the memory that requires check. Hey, the, the path to ISP is actually fine. Then the issue could be, well, as I get to the cloud and the security processing node, the Prisma access service, could the issue be there? Yeah, okay, you can sort of check for that. And since you're also running synthetics and real user monitoring from the Prisma Access Service Processing Node, you could also figure out as the traffic egresses from the security processing node. You said real user monitoring.
1: Now you're starting to get into another area that the analysts define as a separate thing. They normally say, Dem is this and Rum is this and never the twain shall meet, but I actually believe they're all the same thing, right? There was a historical thing where digital experience management was a separate thing, but now it's just, to me, it's just part of SASE. For most customers, you bring it, you get it in SASE, you want it to be part of the SASE. It should be unified as part of your SD WAN strategy, if that makes sense.
2: Well, that is absolutely right. If you think about it, when we think about SASE, it's branch and mobile user. And as you go to branch, SD-WAN is a critical component of our strategy. It's an essential component of our strategy. So as this pandemic wanes and we all hopefully go back to our offices, right, and you have Mm -hmm. our SD-WAN devices, now those SD-WAN devices are also going to run Synthetics.
1: If you're feeling unsafe or insecure about moving to the public net WAN, so if you're moving away from a private WAN to a public WAN and you feel nervous that you're not getting bandwidth guarantees, deploying the digital experience management means you can take away that risk. You can know what's happening per user right at the edge. And so your SD-WAN deployment then becomes much more certain and you're much more confident about how you're progressing, particularly as you do the rollout because you could be monitoring each of those users and monitoring what SD-WAN is doing for them.
2: Yeah. Just think about that, right? Once you know that a particular app is, let's say, having a performance issue on one path, You can seamlessly switch that application to a different path. So that's the management part, right? Hey, look, I know where the problem is. I can actually go Mm -hmm. and start solving it for you. So I
0: want to, one more thing before we wrap. I thought you mentioned that part of the digital experience management piece also includes evaluating the performance of if I'm using your Prisma SASE service, that's part of the thing I get. I can sort of hold you to account with this tool as well. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So if you look at our armory of (laughs) solutions, right, there's this digital experience management and there's a Prisma Access Insights solution that we have. And that is actually what you said, right? Prisma Access Insights gives us visibility into what's happening to Prisma Access infrastructure. So it's the perfect complement to our digital experience management solution. You take Prisma Access Insights, which is part of the base offer of the product. And you get full visibility about what's happening in our infrastructure. And if there are any potential issues with our infrastructure. Well, this
0: does wrap up the time we have. Anupam, thank you for joining us. And thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. If folks want to find out more, where would you send them to go?
2: Go visit paloaltonetworks.com slash prisma slash ADEM, A-D-E-M. And you'll find all the information that we talked about at that landing page. Fantastic.
0: That's com slash prisma slash A-D-E-M. Uh, thanks again to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor, and thank you for listening. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn, and please do rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.